big moment. I'd like to welcome you all. This is uh, the 31st three-month retreat. So all of you are becoming part of a long lineage now of yogis sitting this long course every year. I'd like to introduce a little more formally my wonderfully esteemed colleagues. Uh, I guess it's fairly obvious that I'm Joseph. <laughs> this, this, this team is Joseph and the women. <laughs> um, so Myoshin Kelly, who's sitting in the chair, uh, she's originally from Canada. She lived in Australia for a long time. She's done a lot of practice uh, with Burmese teachers, some of the really great Burmese masters, Saida Upandita, Saida Ujanaka. Um, she was a nun in Burma for some time. Uh, she's also practiced uh, with a Zen master during the time she was in Australia. And the last few years since actually the opening of the Forest Refuge, she is the teacher in residence uh, at the Forest Refuge. And so she is really on loan to us for these six weeks. Really glad that she can be part of the team. Rebecca Bradshaw, who is sitting right in front of Miocean, uh, <coughs> is a very long time practitioner. She's a psychotherapist. She's been teaching now here at IMS for quite a while and has given a lot of energy to the teen program and the teen retreat that's been going on here for many years. And also, more recently, the, what is it, 18 to 32. That was the age span, uh, which is a retreat I think we just began this year basically for the 20-somethings with a little uh, leeway on both sides. She's also one of the guiding teachers at a center out in Western Mass in the Northampton, uh, East Hampton area. Um, Rebecca taught um, part one of the three-month retreat last year as well. To my right is... Patricia Feldman Genou. Uh, she's from Switzerland. Long time practitioner, um, studying in various traditions. Uh, she's been in Burma, studying with Upandita, Saida Upandita. She studied uh, also in the Tibetan tradition. Um, she and her husband started a small center in Geneva, Switzerland, and they've been teaching in Israel, in Europe, in many different places in this country. So it's really great to have Patricia here, as well as a very international crowd. On my left is Annie Nugent, who likewise has been practicing for many, many years. She's originally from South Africa. I think we first, did you first sit in the course when I taught in her? Yeah. Years ago, I think it was when, in the 70s or 80s? Yeah, 1980, I was teaching in South Africa and that was our first connection. 
um, Annie has been uh, a resident teacher here at the retreat center for the staff. She was a resident teacher for four years uh, and has uh, been teaching now retreats at different parts of the country, uh, in the south, in New Mexico. So we're really glad to have her on board as well. And all the way to my right is Debbie Ratner, who will be assisting us during the course. Uh, She was a nun in Burma for a year. She's done a lot of practice uh, there. She's teaching now in the Washington, D.C. area, and she's expecting her baby in December. I'd also... I'd also like to introduce uh, Pascal. Did the manager introduce you yet? Has. Okay. So you already know the night contact. Wonderful person. (laughs) 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 So those are the introductions. It's it's really a great team. Uh, I think this six weeks... Uh, it's going to really be uh, quite a special time with uh, my colleagues. So coming together for retreat, any length retreat, but especially one of this length, is always a special time. You know, it's like the gathering of a family of Dharma practitioners. And it's amazing, even for people who don't know one another, who haven't met before, you know, we come together in this kind of environment for this purpose. And it's quite amazing just the feeling of the Dharma connection that's there right from the beginning. And felt it particularly this morning in the go-around. You know, as all of you were just saying where you were from and what your intention or aspiration was, you feel this energy gathering from different parts of the world and different parts of the continent. And it's like this ingathering, you know, of energy and commitment to Dharma practice. Uh, it was really inspiring just to be here and to listen to that. You know, in this troubled and often crazy world of ours, we come together and create a place of refuge, you know, a place of safety. We come together and create a place where people share the highest values of freedom, you know, of awakening, of love, of compassion. And the work we'll be doing here together, whether it's for the next six weeks or the next three months, the work we'll be doing is to free the mind from the entanglements of greed, the entanglement of hatred and anger, the entanglement of delusion, of ignorance. Because these are the factors that cause so much suffering both in ourselves 
and also the cause of suffering in the world. There's a famous text from the Pali uh, tradition that's called The Path of Purification. And it's a great commentary on the Buddha's teachings. This book starts with a question, and the whole book is the answer to the question. How do we disentangle the tangle? And really, our whole practice here, our whole spiritual journey, is the answer to that question. The way we disentangle the tangle is through this practice of mindfulness, through this practice of awareness. I think of Dharma practice as being the master game of life. Why? Because it really addresses the questions of life itself. Now it explores deeply and precisely the question of what is it that we call this life? Now, what is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of consciousness? What is the nature of this body? It's said that Buddhas come into the world to resolve the great question of birth and death. And we step back and just look at at the big picture. You know, whether we think of it just of this life or over many lifetimes, what does it all mean? You know, beings born and dying, ourselves being born and dying. So it said the Buddhas, all the Buddhas, come into the world to resolve that question, the meaning of that. And that's what we're undertaking here in our practice. And it's quite amazing that we have 75 or 80 people joining together to do just this. This is pretty rare in the world. You know, there are not many people who are willing and devoted enough to explore, to make this commitment. you can all undertake this journey with a tremendous degree of self-respect. Because as you know, it's not easy to arrange one's life to come here and do this. You know, to arrange for the time and the resources at a time when you have the interest and the motivation. So a lot of conditions have to come together to make this possible. Now, many of you may have had the experience of trying to explain to your family or friends what it is you were going to be doing. You know, with kind of a quizzical look perhaps on their faces. One time I was going on retreat and I was trying to explain a young, to a young niece of mine you know, what I was going to be doing. And she just asked me, well, do they have TV there? No. Can you go shopping? <laughs> no. 
I think we can all reflect on and appreciate the depth of our paramis. You know, parami is a Pali word which means the accumulated force of goodness in our mind stream. The accumulated force of wholesome actions that we've developed, whether in just in this lifetime or perhaps over many lifetimes. Our ability to be here together, to have the interest and the possibility and the circumstances which allow for the depth of this exploration, it's arising because the paramis are there for it to happen. And so as we enter into this, we can really feel a certain kind of pride. And it's not an ego pride. You know, it's, it's really a noble, it's a, it's a dharma pride of just appreciation. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of parami behind our being here. And we build on that, and we develop it, and we strengthen it. And so we undertake this work really from this place of self-respect and a tremendous respect for each other, for our fellow yogis. You know, we're all on this journey together. And we can be a tremendous support for one another. We are a tremendous support for one another. As most of you know, this journey of awakening is not easy. The Buddha likened it to swimming upstream. Now, there are very strong habits in the mind, which, if you're not very familiar with already, will become very familiar with. Just very strong habits of desire and aversion and judging and comparing and hopes and fears and all kinds of mental tendencies. It takes a very strong commitment. It takes a certain fire within us to stay awake and to stay aware through it all. Because sometimes your experience will be very pleasant and enjoyable. You'll wish you could stay here for a year And at other times, it will be distinctly unenjoyable and unpleasant and difficult. You're probably wondering why you ever came. And it's all part of the journey. These things are not a mistake. A quality of mind that for me has been tremendously helpful over all these years of practice in terms of keeping this, the fire of interest, of commitment, is the quality of interest. It's that quality that wants to know, that wants to understand. What is it that's arising in my mind? Is it the cause of suffering? Is it the cause of peace? It's that very deep willingness to understand our minds, to understand our hearts. It was expressed really beautifully by a Japanese poet, a woman poet. She wrote, The moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, 
I knew myself completely, no part left out. And that so expresses you know, what we'll be doing here together, to know ourselves completely, no part left out. Well, that takes some courage and commitment and steadfastness and openness. But the fruit of that, the rewards of that, are tremendous. So can we practice with the intention, with the aspiration, that whatever arises, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's easy, it's difficult, can we practice with the aspiration that with whatever arises for us in our experience, our intention is to know it, to be aware of it, to be with it. So that gives a tremendous strength. For many years in my practice, I would really struggle with the difficulties that arose. You know, I thought that I was a bad yogi if I was feeling sleepy or restless, and so I'd have all this self-judgment. Or even on top of that, I'd start feeling I was this bad person, this terrible person, if I saw the different defilements in my mind, you know, of greed or envy or pride, whatever it might be. A very big change happened for me, and it made the practice much more compelling and much more interesting when I realized that all of these difficulties are not a problem. They are part of the path. They are going to arise. That's the point of being here. We want to see every part of ourselves. And when we have that willingness... It's quite amazing. Then there's a certain quality of joy that comes even in seeing the defilements because we would rather see them than not see them. We'd rather be awake and aware rather than be living in delusion and ignorance. And when we make that turn in our minds, then we welcome it all. Let me see it. Let me understand it. How am I getting hooked? How can I be free? So this is the work that we'll be doing. Now we'll be speaking a lot over these weeks of the great effort that's needed to do this. It is often like swimming upstream. To awaken from the dreamlike state of just our delusion, our habits, of not knowing. But we can also understand Dharma practice, we can reframe it not only in terms of the great effort that's needed, but also in terms of it being a practice of surrender. Can we surrender to the moment? Can we let go into the moment where our job is simply to know what it is that's arising? It's an opening to simply knowing exactly what is there, moment after moment. And as we practice this quality of surrender, 
of letting go into our experience, what happens over time is that we develop a profound sense of trust in the process. And we're not fighting with it so much, we're not struggling with it so much. We surrender into it and trust this Dharma unfolding. There was one one period in my practice when I would begin each sitting just with a little phrase in my mind, I surrender to the Dharma. Whatever happens, let it happen. I just surrender to the Dharma. And it was tremendously helpful for me to relax into what was happening rather than trying to control or manipulate or struggle with it. It's very helpful to remember that we're not practicing in order to get something. You know, we have such a cultural consumer conditioning that often gets uh, translated into our spiritual practice. We're not trying to get something. We're not trying to get anything. We're simply practicing being aware and learning to not hold on, to not cling, to not grasp. So there are several attitudes of mind which will be helpful for you, you know, as kind of foundational attitudes as you enter into the retreat, as you begin your practice. And we'll be talking, of course, about them all throughout the retreat. And the first of them, Rebecca talked about last night, but I just wanted to emphasize a little bit more. And that is the attitude of renunciation. Now, for these three months, we are creating a meditation monastery. That's really what we're creating here. And the power of all great monasteries comes from the power of renunciation. What's so interesting, I think, for most of us, is that we hear that word, and mostly it doesn't thrill us. (laughs) You know, the very word, renunciation, it just conjures up burdensomeness. Okay, I'll do it. I, I guess it's good for me, but... It just feels heavy and burdensome. And but what I think you'll find, and those of you who are experienced on retreat probably know this deeply already, is that the actual experience of renunciation is a tremendous unburdening. It's like a lightening of our hearts, a lightening of our minds. To dropping back into a wonderful simplicity. And during these last years, I've done uh, some longer retreats at the Forest Refuge. I go in for a month or two um, and just be in this one room, just like you are here, 
you know, and a few things on the shelves. And it was just so totally wonderful to be unencumbered, you know, and that the ease and to see how little we actually need and that our happiness does not depend on having a lot of things. This is not a message we get very often in our culture. And, and so it's a wonderful blessing you know, to be entering into the space where you can actually experience the power of that. The Buddha talked a lot about the freedom of renunciation. And so, you know, over these weeks, I think you'll begin begin to appreciate it a lot. One of the things that we let go of, that we're renouncing, is we're renouncing momentary pleasures as being the guiding principle of our choices. Now, so often in our lives, we're just going for the next hit of pleasant experience. And here on retreat, we're letting go of that as being the guiding principle. These last years, I've been (coughs) doing a little bit of biking, both road biking and mountain biking. And of course, it's great fun to be on top of a long hill and just go coasting down, you know, and you're just being carried along and the wind is in your face and it's this great rush of feeling. But it's really the uphills that make us stronger. And so there's something in meditation practice that over the years I've come to call work days and reward days. You know, work days will be like you're biking up the hill. You're just... And then every once in a while, I think there are more work days than reward days. But every once in a while, you know, you're doing your work and then you get this reward day or reward sitting where you're on top and it's just going by itself. Keep in mind that it's the work days that actually can be the most helpful, the most transforming It's the work days that can be the most fruitful for us in our practice. It's also a time of renunciation of family and friends and connections. And you're coming into this wonderful place of solitude, even, even amidst 75 or 100 people. We're creating a place of solitude and it is so wonderful. We don't have to present ourselves to anyone. It becomes such a relief to actually and simply drop back into our own being, into our own selves. This is particularly important and helpful for those of you who may have come, you know, with friends or partners. You know, this renunciation of family and friends and entering into this place of solitude is tremendously helpful. 
There's a renunciation of fixed ideas of ourselves, you know, of the world, of what the path is. We have so many preconceptions about who we are and about how the meditation path should unfold and about all kinds of things. Renunciation means letting go of all that, letting go of preconceptions, really coming to the practice, coming to ourselves with beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and he wrote this wonderful book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is it's really a classic. And in it, he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. You know, so the more we think we know, the fewer possibilities there are for discovery. If we can abide in beginner's mind, or what the Korean Zen master Sung Sung called don't know mind, you know, don't know. Letting go of conclusions about how we are, you know, how our practice should be. We just settle in to the unfolding journey. There's a tremendous freshness that can come from that. So the second support for our practice, the first is this attitude of renunciation and appreciating the lightness of it, the unburdening of it. The second great support for practice is patience, is the quality of patience. Understanding that it is completely natural and inevitable that you will go through many swings and cycles during your time here. Now sometimes you'll be happy and inspired and concentrated and still and peaceful and at other times your body will be uncomfortable and you'll be restless and bored and not concentrated. And this is going to happen. You'll just go from one to the other, back and forth again. Sometimes yogi mind will take over. And those of you who are not yet familiar with yogi mind, it's when the smallest things start assuming cosmic importance. I don't have the right color shoelaces. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. If you start obsessing about something, know pretty much that it's yogi mind. The Buddha spoke often about the importance of patience. And he said, in, in, one, in one teaching, he said, patience leads to Nibbana. Patience leads to enlightenment. So don't undervalue this quality. You know, it's a hugely important quality of mind to practice and to cultivate. And it's not, patience is not a quality of endurance. It's not, it's not that quality of gritting your teeth through the difficulties. That's not what patience means. Patience is that quality of constancy. 
recognizing that there will be ups and downs, swings and cycles, easy times, difficult times, and we're just constant. Let me be with this. Let me be with this. I first started teaching in this country in 1974 at Naropa Institute, which was a Buddhist, at that time, summer, summer program in Boulder, Colorado, set up by Trungpa Rinpoche, one of really wonderful Tibetan uh, master. And that first summer in 74 was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock, because thousands of people, several thousand people gathered in Boulder, you know, people interested in Eastern teachings. You know, it was really the first, the first big gathering of people. And so Trungpa Rinpoche was there, and also Ramdas. Ramdas was teaching a course in the Bhagavad Gita. And they were the big draws, you know, there's Trungpa on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Ramdas on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And so, you know, everybody who was attending would come to these lectures. And it was really interesting because Trungpa was just talking about kind of the, you know, the hard truths of Buddhism, the truth of suffering and what causes suffering and attachment and, you know, letting go of the attachment and just this very down-to-earth, practical look at reality as it is. So that was on, I don't know, (laughs) Monday, Wednesday, Friday. <laughs> the other days, Ramdas would come on the Bhagavad Gita, and those of you who know him, I mean, he's he's a total bhakti, you know, in devotion, and love, and light, and grace, and you know, just all these uplifting qualities. And then Trungpa would talk the next night. You got to look at your suffering, and, <laughs> and then Ramdas would say, "No, no, you know, surrender to God." <laughs> So this went back and forth. And then one evening in the question period, somebody asked Trungpa Rinpoche, well, in all of these Buddhist teachings, you know, is, there, is there something that's equivalent to the grace of God? You know, what, what's, the, what's the Buddhist equivalent of grace? Because it's such a beautiful uh, notion, you know, an experience. And Trungpa thought for a moment and He's really very brilliant, and he's just so incisive. You know, so he thought for a moment, he said, yes, there is something in Buddhism which corresponds to that. He said, patience is grace. And it's just one of those moments, it just captured something. When we're patient, everything opens up. When we're patient, Grace is possible. And so even though it's a very ordinary, prosaic word in English and in our usage, as I say, don't underestimate its power. It will be a tremendous strength for you if you can recall and come back to it in the course of the many different experiences you'll have, both pleasant and unpleasant and whatever, can I be patient? Can I have this constancy with whatever it is? That itself leads to awakening.
And the last quality I'd like to mention tonight that is tremendous support for us, and it's a quality which we'll be talking more about in these next days and practicing, is the quality of metta, of loving-kindness. Now, it's this quality of friendliness, of kindness to ourselves and to others. One of the lines from an old samurai poem, which Anonymous came across, and it's, it's one of my favorite lines in terms of entering into a retreat. It says, I make my mind my friend. You know, if you did nothing else in the six weeks or three months that you'll be here except to make your mind your friend, that would be a great accomplishment. And that's really what we're doing. And so we want to bring this quality of metta, of friendliness, of kindness. It's not only to other beings, it's to our own experience, to our own minds. This is a few lines from a poem by Derek Walcott. Uh, The name of the poem is Love After Love. This is just the beginning of it. He says, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. And in some way, that's our practice. We're meeting ourselves you know, in a new way, in a loving way. So out of the silence, out of the awareness, as we practice in this way, you know, comes deeper levels of wisdom, deeper levels of understanding that actually bring peace to ourselves and helps us to bring peace to the world. Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma, the gift of truth, is the highest gift. And this is the gift that you're giving to yourself in being here on retreat. It's the gift of seeing clearly. It's the gift of connecting with what is true. It's coming back again and again to mindfulness, to awareness, to love, to compassion. And even as we do this, and even as we proceed moment after moment, We can also hold this journey in the context of larger possibilities. You know, whether we call it enlightenment or awakening or liberation or freedom or peace or happiness, whatever word captures for you the highest potential, the highest possibility, that can be the frame for everything we do. And as we practice, And as our practice deepens, 
we connect more and more deeply with the understanding that we are not doing this for ourselves alone. You know, that we're practicing, we can practice with the aspiration that our understanding and our lives be for the benefit and welfare of all beings. It's a great thing you're embarking upon. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> so now Annie is going to talk a little bit about the refuges and precepts, and then we'll formally take them as, as the formal beginning of the retreat. Thank you. As Joseph said, on opening night of a retreat, it's traditional to set the retreat in motion by formally chanting the refuges and the precepts together. In this way, we, we set the stage or prepare the mind for the work that we're going to be doing here opening the heart-mind to the Dharma. And when we take refuge in something, it means that we see that something as a source of safety or a protection, or we feel held by that something. And so on retreat here, or if we have dedicated our life to the practice, our source of refuge is the triple gem, the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha has a number of qualities or facets intermingled into it. Firstly, we might say that we are acknowledging and reminding ourselves of what we're doing here. Yes, we've come here to practice the Dharma that the Buddha has taught us. It's also, most importantly, an act of reverence or a sign of our respect to the Buddha and his Dharma and the Sangha, a sign of veneration. And when we truly and deeply acknowledge the Triple Gem as our source of refuge, we feel a deepening devotion within us As Joseph said, it's a way of 
giving over to the practice, we surrender to the Buddha Dharma. And this grows more deeply in us as we practice more and we see the results. We become more deeply connected to that refuge of Buddha Dharma Sangha. The quality of gratitude is also aroused within us. Because in a way, when we take refuge, we could say that we're saying thank you to the Buddha for giving us the true refuge that takes us to freedom. When we take refuge, it's also not limited to being done in the hall. Sitting here, perhaps before we meditate, we can do it at any time of the day, wherever we are. If, when we're in the hall, and as we take the refuges and precepts, and as we chant them, you can visualize the Buddha as a human being as we do the refuges and precepts. This can be a helpful way of taking refuge wherever we are, whether it's in the bathroom, in the kitchen, out on a walk, in our car, at any time in our life. We might simply be able to call up an image of the Buddha in our mind, of our our own picture of that human being, and take refuge right then and there because it can be a great source of support to us in our lives when we're having difficulty. Perhaps we're struggling to keep the precepts or a particular precept. And at any time we might put our hands together and take refuge within our own hearts, anywhere. So just to be aware that it's not limited to sitting in the hall doing it before our meditation practice. Interestingly enough, even the Buddha, after he became enlightened, he reflected on who he might pay respects to. And he thought for a while and thought, well, who might I venerate, who might I honor and respect? And then he realized that there was nobody that was as perfect as he was. But then he thought, oh, there is the Dharma. And so I will honor, respect, and obey the Dharma. Because he said, that one who does not honor and obey somebody dwells ill at ease. So we can see that it plays a very important role in our practice. So when we take refuge, firstly we take refuge in the Buddha. That's acknowledging the man himself and his extraordinary feat of liberation. We acknowledge that. And two, 
we recognize that we have this potential within our own hearts. This is something that we can aspire to and know within us that with practice we too can become fully liberated. And then taking refuge in the Dharma. This is the teachings, sometimes called the way or the truth. So through the Buddha's compassion, we have the practice path to freedom. And then the third of the Triple Gem, the Sangha. Now I'd like to look at three aspects related to the Sangha. In my own practice, when I took refuge and when I worked with the last aspect, the Sangha, I worked with it in this way. I would recognize that from the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, all the way through to today, there have been all of these teachers offering the Dharma to beings who deepened their practice and came to some depth of understanding. So it included the general Sangha doing the practice and also all of the teachers down the line, the lineage of teachers right up until today. So that's one way that we can look at the Sangha. And then about 18 months or so, I was reading a book I had read many, many times. It's a book of Achang Chas. And he was talking about this category, the Sangha. And he divided it into three parts. The first category, he said, were those beings who were making a sincere effort in their practice to come to some understanding. And that we can all take in. It, it makes a lot of sense to us. That is one aspect of the Sangha. And then the second aspect, he said, were those who had already done considerable practice and had come to some depth of understanding, some fairly deep understanding, and were then able to impart the Dharma to be a guide and a support to others. And then he said there is a third category, and this is what he had to say. This is the highest level of the Sangha. This is the group of those whose practice has led them to the body, speech, and mind of the Buddha. They are above the world, free of the world, and free of all attachments and clinging. These are known as arhants, or free ones, the highest level of the noble ones. Did you notice anything about what he had to say there? He's talking in the present tense. And that was quite an awakening for me. Because often when we think of the Sangha, we don't actually include, some of us maybe, that there are completely free, totally liberated beings in the world. We may not know them. We may not have seen them. 
But it's really good to expand the mind to include that possibility because it does something for us. It does something for our own practice. So to broaden and deepen the aspect of Sangha when we take refuge. So then looking at the precepts. The, pre- the precepts create a container in which we can do the practice. And here on retreat together, we support each other in adhering to the precepts to keep the container pure. It is a form of guideline to us both on retreat and in the world, in how we live out our lives. So it both protects us and others. And so therefore we could say what we're doing is developing a heart-mind that wants to live in this world from a place of harmony and taking care of others, from a place of non-harming. So let's look at the first of the precepts. The first five are the basic precepts that we carry out into life and that most of us will do, we will all do these five on retreat. And then in addition to the first five, there are a further three that some of us might like to consider doing within the next week. And the last three will be done on Friday. So it will give you a few days to consider whether you would like to do this or not. And when we get to the last three, realizing that you can do this just a day at a time, the last three. The others we adhere to all the time if we possibly can. (laughs) Yeah. So let's look at the first of of the precepts. I undertake the training to refrain from destroying living creatures. Now we know quite clearly that this is not killing living beings. But on retreat, we're given the opportunity to look very carefully at these precepts. We have nothing else to do on retreat other than watch what's going on within our hearts and minds, watch the states of mind, watch the tendencies. So here we can see what goes on within us. Perhaps if there's some tiny little creature buzzing around our ear. How do we relate to that little creature? And so we can refine this precept from not killing to not harming in any way at all. And just remembering too that it's the intention to harm or the intention to kill that we're talking about here. Because, of course, inadvertently, we may kill something, we may hurt something. But if that hasn't been our intention, remembering that that does not affect us karmically. We haven't deliberately tried to destroy or harm anything there. And then the second precept 
not stealing. Taking the training not to steal. Again, of course, we don't steal. I'm sure most of us don't steal. It's not part of our upbringing. But sometimes we might do something that we don't realize is a form of stealing. So again, on retreat, we're afforded the opportunity to refine these precepts, to take a careful look as to whether we take something that doesn't belong to us. Perhaps somebody is sitting with three or four cushions on just their seat. And we think, oh, they don't need three or four cushions. I think I'll just take one. They might need those three or four. So that could be construed as taking what's not given. So in this way, we can look more deeply at how we relate to the precepts. The third precept is refraining altogether from sexual activity. Now on retreat, this is a very helpful way to hold this precept so that sexual energy doesn't leak out, so that we can work with this energy and see what happens within us. Can we simply be there with that energy, watch it, be there with it as it is, and see it disappear, just like any other form of energy? So working with this precept, practicing restraint, and not acting out on tendencies. The fourth precept is not lying or incorrect speech. Again, here on retreat, this should be a very easy precept for us because, of course, here we are practicing noble silence. However, I would like to just reiterate, although it has been said already, please take care not to talk to any of the yogis. Even the slightest thing can be very jarring to someone here. Respecting that yogi's space and feeling of trust here, that this is how we expect to be held and received on retreat, and that is not to be spoken to. We can stretch this a little further to include <coughs> notes, because we might think, ha, ah, fair enough, I won't speak, but I'll just write a little note to my neighbor, dear neighbor, your watch is ticking very loudly, your loving neighbor, for example, and then put it on their cushion. Please don't do that. But these things might be construed as wrong speech here. So taking care there, as annoying as somebody might be, rather go to the office or speak to one of your teachers. Then there's another aspect to right speech that we could consider. And that is in our interviews. Can we report our practice in as honest and accurate a way as we can so that we can get the appropriate guidance. This is another way, not intentionally, but sometimes we just might leave out something or say something else. So just taking care there too. Then the fifth precept, 
refraining from taking liquor or drugs. Substance abuse. Again, this might seem pretty straightforward on retreat. Yet I do remember Joseph receiving a note from a yogi once, which he read out in the hall, and that was related to this precept asking about uh, the red wine vinegar that was on the, <laughs> on the table in the kitchen. So I don't think it includes that, but no alcohol, of course, on retreat whatsoever. Now let me just speak for a moment on, on drugs. Because sometimes we are on medication of some sort, and we might feel, oh, I think I'll just cut those out too while I'm here. Please don't do that. If you're on any form of medication, stay with the medication, because all sorts of symptoms might arise if you do go off the, the medication that may not be very helpful for you. So when we talk about this precept, we're not referring to your medication at all, but it's more uh, recreational drugs. So then let's look at the last three precepts that some of you might consider. This is eating after the noonday meal. So if we take this precept, our last meal would be lunchtime. And this is stretching ourselves a little bit more in terms of renunciation. Joseph and Rebecca have both spoken on renunciation. It's something we might like to experiment with. Take a careful look at what your motivation is. It's not about going on diet or, or losing weight. I want to lose 5 pounds or 10 pounds by the end of the retreat. So I think I'll take the eight precepts. <laughs> That's not the reason for taking them. It's to stretch ourselves in terms of, of our practice and renounce the eating of that last meal and see what it does for us. It can be very energizing. It might give us more energy to give over to the practice more, give more of our time to the practice. So you might like to work with it for one day or two days or a week, always realizing that at any time you can let it go. The seventh precept is uh, refraining from entertainment and beautification and adornment. So that might seem like a pretty straightforward precept, quite easy to keep, but it might not be for some of us. We may feel quite protected by our adornments or our makeup, for example, or whatever entertainment we might indulge in. But if we do feel that this is a stretch for us, seeing if we can give it a try. Do we need that mascara? Or, for <laughs> or whatever else we might do to beautify ourselves. The, the earrings or the, the jewelry. Or that novel. Hopefully there are no intentions whatsoever to do any form of novel reading or the like. 
<gasps> but it's amazing what we can find as entertainment, something that we had no idea or we might not include as a form of entertainment just in our normal life can become a form of entertainment. Like the notice board, just as an example. So can we renounce that too? Then the last precept, undertaking not to lie on high and luxurious beds or very luxurious cushions. I don't think there are any very high and luxurious beds <laughs> here. But taking a look at how we can work with this precept. Do we overindulge? Do we need to have extra comfort than most people might need here? And so maybe we can practice. Maybe we only need two zabutans as opposed to three, or something like that. Taking a look to that we're not using these last precept, three precepts to, to beat ourselves up. For example, to say, right, I'm not going to sit on any cushion at all. In fact, I'm going to sit on the floor. Can you see we can turn this around and become really harsh on ourselves with these precepts? So that's not really the intention. It's renunciation, but not from a beating ourselves up place from within the heart, really looking within and experimenting. One last thing, these precepts are all trainings, so we're training with them, and if at any time we might find we transgress, in the moment that we recognize this, can we recommit to taking that precept again and beginning afresh? And just to let you know that the precepts will be done, I think, two mornings a week at the very first sit. So that might be helpful for you too. So when we begin this chant, considering the words, taking in the meaning, and coming from a a sincere and simple place within us. So we'll do the precepts in Pali, and I will we'll do call and response, and we'll see how that unfolds. Do you all have the, the chance sheets? Because there's, there's a bunch of them up here if you'd like to come up and get one. So for this evening again, just the five precepts, the refuges and the five precepts, and we'll do call and response at first to see how everybody does, and then perhaps we'll do them together. So settling, settling down into the body, grounding ourselves,
Namo tassa, Namo tassa, Bhagavato arahato, Sama, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Namo tassa, Namo tassa, Bhagavato. Arahato, 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 Sama, Sambodasa, Sama, Sambodasa, Namo Tassa, Namo Tassa, Bhagavato, Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato. Sama Sambodasa, Sama Sambodasa, Bodang Saranangachami, Bodang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami, Damang Saranangachami. Sangang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Buddhang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Buddhang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami, Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami. Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami, Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami, Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangachami, Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangachami. Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami, Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami, Panati Pata, Panati Pata, Wedapmini, Wedapmini, Sikapadang Samadiami. Sikapadang samadhyami Adinadana, Adinadana Verapmini, Verapmini Sikapadang samadhyami Samadhyami, Samadhyami Abramacharya, Abramacharya Verapmini Verapmini Sikapadang Sikapadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Musawada Musawada Verapmini 
We'll just do a short sitting just to invite ourselves to uh, reflect. But beforehand, if you need to stand up or just stretch your legs for have been sitting more than an hour, so really stand up if you need to, and we'll just take a few stretches. So beginning by finding a comfortable position, a posture that is suitable, one that we can maintain, and really grounding ourselves in our body, settling our mind, focusing our attention as a way to recollect the energy and feeling ourselves being, just being in this body here and now, allowing ourselves to feel the different parts of the body, beginning by our head, then our neck, shoulders, relaxing the shoulders, dropping them if we need to, feel some tension there, really relaxing and feeling the whole body sitting. Noticing the touch points 
places where we clearly feel sensations of hardness, pressure, contact with the ground, our buttock just touching whatever we're sitting on, our hands touching one another, points of contact that are predominant. Just feeling that sense of grounding in the physical sense of body, felt sense. And gently focusing on the movement of sensations that are very clear where the breath is most apparent. Letting the breath be just as it is, breathing in, breathing out, wherever you feel it the most clearly, connecting and sustaining the attention there. Whenever the mind is wandering, it's drifting away, just very gently, with a very soft awareness, bring it back and connect again with the movement of the sensations that are clearly manifesting as we're breathing. 